Welcome to Maison Pur, the podcast. I'm your host, Molly Hill. This podcast is all about natural living and how to get there without stressing out. We'll discuss easy tips to help create a healthier home, natural ways to care for our bodies, and so much more. I think it's safe to say that we all want lawns and gardens that are safe for our families and also our pets, but we also want to be good stewards of the planet. So I have a very special guest joining us today, Elizabeth Kaufman. She's an expert in plant biology and conservation. She also specializes in native plants and especially native pollinators. And they play such a key role in everything from where our food comes from to the plants that are blooming in your yard right now. So she's going to share some ways that we can actually help support native pollinators in our own backyards. Thanks to Earth's Ally for sponsoring this episode. Earth's Ally believes that families should not have to choose between products that work and products that are safe around children and pets. Their complete line of bee-safe gardening products, including weed and grass killer, 3-in-1 plant spray, insect control, and disease control, have all been tested by independent laboratories to ensure that they are both effective and safe for people, pets, and the planet when used as directed. For more information, visit earthsally.com. That's E-A-R-T-H-S-A-L-L-Y.com. Hi, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hello, Molly. I'm excited to be here and to speak with you and all your listeners. Yes. Well, I am so excited because this is National Pollinator Week, not the time that we're recording, but the time that the listeners will be hearing it. And I wanted to first talk about the work that you do with Pollinator Partnership. Absolutely. I'm the Senior Plant Ecologist at Pollinator Partnership, also known as P2. Pollinator Partnership was founded in 1997, and we work for the conservation and protection of all pollinators. And we do that through habitat creation and enhancement programs, education, on-the-ground scientific research. We work in collaboration with government agencies and other nonprofits, and we guide sensible public policy. Wow. I know there's so much that goes into that, but it also sounds like such a fascinating and fun place to work and just to see all the different things happening to help protect our pollinators. It absolutely is. And it's very encouraging to see people from all different sectors, their interest and their dedication to making a difference in the world of pollinator protection and conservation. Absolutely. So can you share what a native pollinator is and basically why they're important? Absolutely. So when we talk about native here in North America, we're talking about the species that evolved here versus European honeybees, for example. Those are pollinators within the native range and pollinating species, native pollinators, I should say, within different parts of the United States are represented by different species. When we talk about native pollinators, we also talk about migratory species such as hummingbirds. And pollinators altogether are a really diverse group of animals, and that includes bees, butterflies, moths, beetles, wasps, bats, ants, flies, and birds, such as hummingbirds, and in Hawaii, the endangered honeycreeper. Here in the United States, the hummingbirds and pollinating bats are primary migratory in the continental United States. However, there are species such as the Anna's hummingbird, who is a resident species in California. Wow. That's, I mean, some of these I had no idea about. 
It's really exciting. When you look worldwide, there are other species such as the white and black ruffled lemur. And there's also a, a reptile species, geckos, that also help with pollination. Oh, that's so cool. You know, it's funny because we have hummingbirds here and I've watched them. You know, I know they love flowers, but I've never really thought of them as a pollinator per se. Absolutely. And an important one at that. Right. The importance of pollinators. Pollinators are really, they're, they're the glue that holds the natural world together and they allow it to function as we know it. Um, our animal pollinators provide ecosystem services that are really vital to planetary health and ecosystem integrity and long-term resilience. Worldwide, between 85 and 90 percent of flowering plants either depend on or enhanced by animal pollination for production and genetic diversity, which equates to approximately 350 to 400,000 plant species worldwide. Wow. So is it safe to say that most plants probably wouldn't be able to reproduce without pollinators? Majority of plants would not, or they would not produce as successfully, be able to reproduce as successfully. Some examples are, let's say, strawberries. Strawberries can self-pollinate. However, the difference in the fruit and the yield and the quality of the fruit, it's greatly enhanced by animal pollination. Sure, sure. I think, you know, for a lot of people, <laughs> it's funny when I've talked about pollinators before, I think people have a fear, especially of like anything that stings. So like wasps or we have like yellow jackets here that can be kind of bad. And then of course, bees, which I feel like most people associate bees with being pollinators and probably know that they're important. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the different types of bees. <laughs> How do people tell the difference and kind of just some unique things about the different ones and which ones might be the most beneficial for our gardens and for the environment as a whole? Sure, absolutely. So when we talk about bees, bees are the most efficient pollinators of all the different species. And that is because they are actively collecting pollen for their young and for reproduction. In comparison, butterflies are nectar seekers and they incidentally pollinate as they're flying from flower to flower to collect nectar, feed on nectar. They incidentally move smaller amounts of pollen. So bees, while they do use nectar for food, they're also, again, gathering pollen. So as they move from plant to plant, they're pollinating these plants. When it comes to bees here in North America, there's over 4,000 different species of native bees. And they range in size from, from quite tiny to larger bumblebees, which most people are, are familiar. Different bees have different foraging range abilities. So smaller non-social bees may only travel 300 feet from their nesting site to the floral resources. Whereas larger bees, such as bumblebees, can forage up to two to eight miles. Oh, wow. And they find their way back? And they find their way back. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's amazing. Yes, most bees are solitary. And that means they nest and overwinter individually versus social bees. Social bees are honeybees and bumblebees that live together in colonies. And social bees, they work together. They have, there's a queen that lays eggs. And then there are drone and worker bees that all work together to support the colony or with honeybees, the hive. Again, most bees are solitary, so they nest and overwinter in uh, woody debris or under leaf litter, some tunnel in the soil under bare ground, and some use like pithy or hollow-stemmed forbs and shrubs 
and bunch grasses for their nesting sites. So let me ask you, because we have something here called carpenter bees, and I'm not sure if it's specific to the Southeast or if it's they're everywhere, but I see <laughs> every year people are trying to like kill them and set up traps for them. And I have one, my raised garden bed is right next to our fence, which is wood. And so there is one that a couple of years ago, I don't know if it's the same bee or not. And you, hopefully you will be able to shed some light, but it drilled a hole into the fence and it just comes out and kind of goes around my garden and then goes back into the fence. So I guess that's a solitary bee, but it already came out again this year. So I was like, is that the same bee or is that like it's next generation? Most likely that's the next generation. Typically, solitary bees will live for a year through their, their floral life cycle is approximately a year. Some bees have shorter life, life cycles than that. The female bee will, she will lay eggs on pollen and nectar balls. And then the larva will hatch and they'll feed and develop into pupa. And then they'll emerge the next season. Okay. So carpenter bee, that is I guess considered to be a pest by most people, but are they still doing a job of pollinating? They really are. And they're really not so much a, a pest. They don't do damage like some other insects do. And when you think of all the, the services that bees provide and how dependent we really are on bees, you start to get an idea of their importance and reasons for not, not eliminating them and taking them out of our gardens. 75% of crop species worldwide depend on animal pollinators. And that equates to one out of every three bites of food that we eat. So when you think about our choices for, for fruits and for berries, for vegetables, for nuts, and even for things like coffee and chocolate and oils, not to mention if you like a celebratory margarita, this is different. These are those are bats. Our choices would be drastically reduced if we didn't have pollinators and pollination services. So again, carpenter bees are not termites. So we really don't need to be concerned about damage caused by them. And chances are there was already a, a hole in the fence in the wood that that carpenter bee found and then decided to make it into their home. Well, I don't mind because it's actually set up shop right next to my garden. I feel like I've benefited because it's doing a little job for me, pollinating all my my plants. <laughs> You know, so you mentioned the females, and I think just to clear up some confusion as a side note, are all females queen bees, or is there just like one queen bee and then there's female and male bees within the hive, or how does that work? That is a great question. So only social bees have, have separate uh, like queen, drone, and worker bees and have that hierarchy and division of labor and job. Again, most bees are not social bees. They're solitary. So the female bee goes out and she does all the work in gathering pollen and then creating her nests and putting together these pollen and nectar food balls for their young. You know, I guess we've established, especially if you have a garden at home or probably even flowering bushes, things like that, to keep the plants healthy. It's a good thing to encourage the bees to be around. So I wanted to ask, what would be their ideal habitat? Sure. So there are um, multiple factors that contribute to habitat. The first and foremost is the provision of food resources. So those are your flowers and your wildflowers. So if you have a home garden and you're growing fruits or vegetables or berries, it will enhance the production of fruit and veggies by installing native habitat areas. That includes wildflower species that bloom in the spring, the summer, and then late into the fall. 
and more temperate regions, and then year-round in warmer climates, including flowers that have diverse morphologies or sizes, colors, and shapes will attract and sustain pollinators that are of different sizes and have different floral presences. And then we also talk about diverse phenology. And that's, again, that's the timing that the blooms are available. So again, from early spring through the summer, and especially late into the fall, it's important to provide these different flowering resources. And then the other thing that that bees need, again, different bees will nest and overwinter in different habitat types. So again, some bees are going to nest and live in old woody debris. So leaving some fallen you know, tree branches, some old debris um, around the garden, some old bunch grasses, areas where you don't clean up the leaves. We talk about leaving the leaves in the fall. That's a whole campaign these days. Leave the leaves in the fall. Avoid your fall cleanup, your landscape cleanup in areas of the garden to provide habitat. And then postpone your spring cleanup until... In most areas in the United States, that'll be sometime in May, when you have a succession of about five days where the temperatures are 50 degrees and above, that will allow bees to emerge from their overwintering habitat and to hatch and be able to be abundant then across the rest of the spring and summer. Yeah, that makes sense. And then would you say certain flowers attract certain pollinators or are they attracted to like all flowers? Absolutely. So again, depending on the bee size, they're going to be attracted to different flower sizes and flower shapes. So providing some flowers that let's say are like open faced, like when you think of asters and sunflowers that have landing pads and easily accessible nectar will work great for a lot of bee species as well as butterflies. And then there's other bees that prefer more complex shaped flowers. So those that have long tubed or throated calyx, such as think of uh, when you think of columbine or monarda bee balm, those attract other these other types of bees. Okay. So if we are trying to attract bees either for our own garden or just to provide kind of a safe haven because so much of the world is, or at least here in North America, is developed so heavily a variety of flowers, it sounds like it's important, but what else would we need to create something that would be a nice habitat for bees? Sure. So again, having areas in your garden that are undisturbed, where we don't, you know, reach for that, that manicured, perfectly clean look. Again, where we're leaving some, you know, some leaf litter and debris and some fallen wood that provides houses and homes. Some people also like to create bee nests, uh, bee houses, and we can talk about that more, more later in the podcast. And that will also provide nesting and overwintering habitat. The other thing we want to talk about too, when it comes to creating habitat in a safe place, safe habitat for our pollinators is to resist the, the use of chemical pesticides you know, chemical pesticides can be quite toxic to bees and to other wildlife. So it's really important to choose those that are non-toxic to bees and to read the labels on all the products you use so that you're making environmentally responsible choices to protect them. Absolutely. It's actually healthier all the way around for you and your pets and for the wildlife, including the pollinators, right? Absolutely. One other 
question just out of curiosity, especially since I have this lonely bee living in my fence post. <laughs> Do all bees make honey? That's a great question too. Actually, just honeybees, European honeybees are the only ones that make honey. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Cause I was pondering that, like, what is the bee doing with the pollen when he goes back into the little hidey hole? <laughs> I began just making uh, um, nectar and pollen balls for her young to rear her baby in the next generation. What are some other common culprits that negatively impact the bee population? The, I should say the native bee population. Sure. One of the biggest factors is habitat loss and fragmentation. Just a lack of native habitat in areas where bees can forage and nest. With that, you know, the loss of habitat it has come from, you know, the spread of urbanization. And then uh, monocrop agriculture has also reduced a lot of the wild stands. There are also diseases and parasites that have impacted bees, especially honeybees and managed bees. And then uh, climate change is having an impact. There are mismatches that may be happening in terms of the time when bees emerge and the times when floral resources are available to them. Sure. And, you know, if you're talking about the urban spread, a lot of us probably live in areas where we're at least somewhat in an urban area, neighborhoods and whatnot. What are some of the things in our own yards that could negatively impact them? Sure. When you think of wall-to-wall lawn or turf grass, that will be a negative impact because it's lacking resources. When we use a lot of non-native plants in our landscape, that also can have a negative impact. Native bees and our native plants evolved together over millennia. So the resources that are provided by native plants are those that are best fit for our pollinators. And while they will use and they will gather pollen and they will nectar off of plants that are non-native, they don't have the same nutritional quality as native plants. Sure. And then again, when we circle back to chemical pesticides, those have a huge impact. And some pesticides remain in the soil and within the vegetation for a very long period of time. So again, it's very important to carefully read labels and be very selective about products that we use in our home gardens both for ourselves, the health, our health, our pets' health, our children's health, and the health of pollinators and wildlife in general. Absolutely. Well, this episode is sponsored by Earth's Ally, but I first found them two years ago, and I'll just shout them out here because they are one of the first bee-safe brands that I've come across and also just safe in general to use. So I use it all around my veggie garden. That's food that we eat it really controls the insects and weeds and things like that, but also is safe and safe for the bees as, you know, proven by my, at least the descendants of the same little bee visitor that keeps coming every year. (laughs) That's wonderful. Yes. So what can we do at home to attract solitary bees to our garden? Sure. You can plant habitat gardens. And habitat gardens are really fun. It's, It's a great activity for the whole family to get involved with. You know, again, we want to, you want to pick out diverse plants, diverse species, I should say, and you want to provide, you want to aim for three or more different blooming species per season, meaning so you have at least three different species that are blooming in the spring, three different or more blooming species in the summer, and again, three or more blooming species in the fall. And you want to choose different colors and different sizes and shapes of the flowers. 
And then if you are interested in butterflies, you also want to include host plants for butterfly reproduction, such as milkweed for monarch reproduction. Pollinator Partnership does offer for free garden cards, native pollinator plant recipe cards that are available online for download. There are regional cards that provide recommendations for specific natives that are native to each different region. And those are available at uh, pollinator.org. And they're also available on the Earth's Ally site at earthsally.com. I will link to them in the show notes for this as well, but that's such a fantastic resource. I've actually, prior to planting this year, had looked at the one for my region, and it's really interesting to see what's native here. And I think doing the diverse, like you were talking about, like a diverse amount of colors and sizes and everything for the flowers just makes for a gorgeous garden too. So I think that's great advice for anyone that you know likes to be out there and have a pretty garden bed. Absolutely. Another note on on providing gardens and resources is providing balcony pots. If you don't have a yard, providing flower pots on your balconies or patios works really well too. Some people, you know, might question, you know, well, how much good is, you know, are these pots of plants, uh, you know, going to provide? How much good can that do? It actually can do a great deal of good if. If you think about cities and cityscapes or even in suburbs, if we're not providing even patches of resources, these areas become pollen deserts, pollen and nectar deserts. So providing even smaller areas, including, again, patio and balcony pots, provides what we call like stepping stone habitat and a way for pollinators and other wildlife to come and fuel up and then move on to the next patch you know, I think about here in Charlotte, we have a lot, especially uptown. And then as you move, we call it uptown. Most people would say downtown, but that's a Charlotte thing. <laughs> but as you move further and further out, I mean, it's just becoming so much more heavily developed that it's all condos and townhouses and not even a lot of wooded areas or yard space. So I think just having the ability to have a little container garden or even pots in the balcony is a great option for people. Absolutely. So you had mentioned a bee house earlier, which I'm so fascinated by. So can you describe a DIY bee house for us? Sure. There's a number of ways that you can make them. You can use the larger size uh, PVC pipe tubing, or you can build a box and then fill the box or the PVC tube with reeds that are different size and that are cut. You can buy those uh, through some of the um, bee rearing websites or companies, or you can make your own and fill that with different sizes like sticks and grasses. You can also use blocks of wood and drill different size holes in the blocks of wood. Different bees will come and they'll use those, those holes that are drilled in the blocks of wood or the open hollow reeds for nests. One note about creating your own home bee house is you do want to clean it out and just take a look at it if you're saving it year after year after year. But again, we want to make sure when you do go to clean it out that it's late enough in the spring that you've given your your resident bees the chance to hatch and emerge. Sure. That's good to know. And I, I think, you know, that is something that would be fun for kids to do. And I wanted to ask, you know, on that note, since it is National Pollinator Week, most kids are out for summer, this might be a good chance to kind of do a little educational project. What kind of projects do you recommend for kids this week? Oh, sure. There's a bunch of great activities that kids can find on our pollinator.org website. And there are also 
coloring sheets that are available through Earth Ally. You can also make a bee watering station by taking like a shallow bowl or dish and fill it with stones or marbles, put water up below the top line of the stones and marbles. And the stones and marbles will give a safe landing pad for bees and other pollinators, such as butterflies, to come and land and then take a drink. There's also many pollinator-friendly recipes, and Pollinator Partnership offers a, a free cookbook with recipes in it. And you can make seed balls, native seed balls, which then you can toss around in your yard and plants or in your landscape. Oh, yeah, that would be a lot of fun, actually, to do that. And I think the bee water sounds fun. We get so dry here during the summer. I think I might do that one with the kids. Wonderful. Yeah. So where can people learn more about Pollinator Partnership and all the wonderful resources you have? Absolutely. Online, you can go to www.pollinator.org. And then you'll find drop-down menus. If you're specifically looking for Pollinator Week, you look under Programs and you'll find the Pollinator Week tab. And then there's also a number of educational resources in the Learning Center that provides activities and more information. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Elizabeth. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And happy Pollinator Week to all. Happy Pollinator Week to you too. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks again to Earth's Ally for sponsoring today's episode. It's what I use in my own garden to keep native pollinators and my family safe. Be sure to check them out at earthsally.com. That's E-A-R-T-H-S-A-L-L-Y.com. 